is Adele. The song, Someone Like You, from her 2000 al 2011 album, 21. At the time, she wanted to follow up her first album, called 19, uh, with a happier, upbeat album. But life circumstances changed that. Her new album, 21, became uh, uh, about her breakup and recovery from a relationship. Life circumstances changed what she wrote about. It became the, the largest selling album worldwide. I think at that time it broke all the records for the number of single uh, top 10 hits from a single album. It was about her breakup. Music has always played a big part of my life. Now, I am not musical at all, okay? I tried to play guitar when I was about nine or 10 and take it up and I learned notes but could not make music. I pledged that by 30 I would learn to play the piano. I technically did. I learned notes and chords but was unable to make music from the instrument. I love music, but it's a part of my life, a big part, and, uh, and yet not a giftedness on my part. If I were to say, I want you to think about a, a hit song or a song that characterized your teenage years, all of you could come up with a song and probably several. Don and I were born six months apart and almost 2,000 miles away from each other. But the same rock and roll music of the 60s and 70s were part of our childhood memories. We can hear the music and we'll talk about our memories. Music has power because it tends to speak to our soul. It captures some common emotion, uh, emotional experience of life and we respond to that. A ballad is a particular kind of music or, or style of music that cuts across musical genres. If we can hear Johnny Cash singing, falling into that burning ring of fire and going down, down, down. One of my country favorites is, is Carrie Underwood singing about taking a Louisville slugger to both headlights of her cheating partner's souped up four-wheel drive. I laugh every time I hear that song. Other popular musicians, Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran, uh, John Legend, they're all storytellers. They're telling about their experiences. We Christians use ballads to be able to talk about what we've discovered about God. We sang a song earlier about climbing a mountain and crossing a river and needing God's help to do that. No matter what happens to us when we get weary in the journey, I will follow you, we just sang about. 
Ballads are that form of storytelling that music takes on. And there's a particular genre of it called sentimental ballads, which describes some deep emotions in the words of the song. So we tend to connect with those songs, particularly on emotional level. The songwriter paints for us this mental picture of their experience, and we find that we've had similar experiences, and we connect with it. It might be about falling in love or about despair or the pain of, of a broken relationship. This summer, we've been studying the Psalms. Psalms are songs. They're songs. And we tend to think of them as poems because we don't have the sheet music that goes along with them. So we don't hear the tune when we read Psalm 73. We don't hear it in Psalm 23 or any of the other Psalms. No, we've made up songs to go with those and capture those, uh, but we don't have the originals. And so we miss something in the experience as we interact with a Psalm. They're written by singer-songwriters like David and Moses and the sons of Korah. And today, we're going to look at uh, uh, Psalm 73. It's one of 12 songs attributed to a man named Asaph. And it's probably Asaph and his children because they were a line of singers. So open up your Bible or your Bible app, whatever it might be there. And we'll listen to his story and find uh, that it's common to ours. We're going to analyze his thinking process. We're going to uh, look at what he learned so we can learn from him. Now, Asaph was a contemporary of King David. Uh, He and his family were songwriters. They were musicians. They were choral directors that served as worship leaders in King David's court and place of worship. To understand uh, Psalm 73, you need to hear it in your mind as Asaph's ballad, a sentimental ballad about a discovery that he makes, the challenges that he he faced. My challenge to you today is to get you to feel the emotions, the frustrations, the despair that Asaph is describing, and to connect it to a point in your life that you might have thought or felt the very same thing. No, a lot of the Psalms are called Psalms of Praise. They're singing about God's glory. This song will certainly do that by the end, but this is called a song of lament, and a portion of all the Psalms are lament Psalms. Now, to, to understand a lament, you have to get into the flow of it. A lament generally starts out with a premise, something about God, and then it looks at the world around them and says, the world is not what it's supposed to be. There's a deep sigh, and then there's still a commitment in the midst of that that says, I'll still put my hope and trust in you, God. It's a very realistic picture about the world that we live in, this kind of psalm, a lament. Let's listen to Asaph's story, this song about despair and brokenness of the songwriter. And let me give you the clue to it. It's a breakup song. 
Asaph is struggling with his relationship with God. He's come to the point of considering breaking up with God. God isn't who Asaph thought he was. God doesn't do what Asaph thinks he should. There's injustice and inequity in the world. The world is literally upside down to him. Cheaters are winning, they're prospering, while people who are playing by the rules are suffering and being overlooked. Have you experienced that kind of thought, that kind of feeling? You experience it at work or at school or in your family or with your health or in a relationship? If not, have you watched the news lately? The world's upside down. It's not supposed to be this way. What is going on? So Asaph starts out with this psalm with a premise or his philosophy of life, his theology really as it, as it is. In verse 1 we read, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That makes sense? Well, maybe it doesn't sound familiar to you yet. I'll restate it for you. I'll walk with God. I'll follow his ways. And God will bless me. It's called a do-to-be-blessed mentality or theology. We make a bargain with God. I'll do right and you'll reward me for it. It's an equal exchange. I do right, you'll reward me for it. Now, does that sound familiar? Here's what it might look like. We know that God wants us to honor him with how we live our life. We go to a good church, we listen to Christian music, we read our Bibles, we attend Bible study, we pray for the needy, we give some money at church and to charities, we won't lie, cheat, or steal, or we won't hang around with people who do. And if I do that well enough, surely God will bless my life. My family and I will be healthy. We won't face any struggles or problems. We'll increase in wealth. I'll increase in wealth and position. I'll get ahead of others. I won't want for anything. And if perchance along the way I do have to make a sacrifice or two, God will reward me for that too. Maybe even with a bonus. Have you ever thought that way? Well, maybe you can identify with Asaph's ballad. Let's think of Asaph's story as a journey walking up a hill. He starts on this walk with this philosophy that God blesses those who seek to honor him. But he runs to a problem almost immediately. Verse 2, but as for me, my, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Before long, his, his feet start to slip. This terrain isn't what he expected. He's not seeing the world as it's supposed to be, as it should be. The slope is a little bit harder than he expected. 
When he looks around, he gets confused by what he sees. Nothing again is as it should be. It's not the righteous man that's being blessed. It's the wicked man that's prospering. The further he walks, the more discouraging the evidence is. His confusion now turns to frustration. His frustration to anger. This journey is getting rough now. He makes it to the crest of the hill, but as he looks out, again, nothing is as it should be. Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In verse 3 through 9, he's going to describe the prosperity of the wicked. They're healthy and wealthy. They don't experience pain or suffering. They're proud, boastful, and arrogant by what they have and all that they've done and all that they've accumulated. The Living Bible, if you read there, it says, these fat cats, their eyes bulge. It's the wicked that are prospering. Asaph's anger builds. He's not mad at himself. He's not mad at the wicked even. He's mad at God. His anger turns to hurt now. His hurt to loneliness. And the loneliness to despair. He's at the summit now. It all seems all too clear to him. God isn't keeping his side of the bargain. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 11, does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They go on amassing wealth. Does the Most High know what's going on? This is all wrong. And then he thinks the unthinkable thing. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I have washed my hands in innocence. Oh my goodness. It didn't work. God didn't hold up his side of the bargain. What I've been investing in is bankrupt. In the Terms of Resolve series that we did over a year ago, Asaph just hit his wall. What he thought would work for him didn't work. What he thought was true turned out not to be true at all. So he wrestles with these questions. Does God know what's going on here? Does God not see the injustice, the inequity? This is totally unfair. If he sees, why doesn't he do something? If he could fix this, he could fix this, he could intervene. This isn't right. 
oh no, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he has the power but doesn't desire to intervene. Maybe there's something I'm doing wrong. I'm not keeping pace the way I should, and so it's not working. I'll have to try harder, maybe. Asaph is wrestling with these kinds of things. Someone once said that I climbed the ladder of success only to find out it was leaning against the wrong wall. Ever felt that? Any way you slice it, Asaph's conclusion is, I have wasted my time in pursuit of righteousness. It doesn't pay. I think I'll quit. I'm done. Have you ever gotten to that point where you thought that walking with God maybe was a waste of your time? Where if you're going to end up worse than the wicked, then why pursue God? I think I'll just quit. I'm done with this. You know, this isn't a new thought that that he came up with. It's been around as long as man. Throughout Scripture, we see people struggling with this same thought, that I have wasted my time walking with God. Abraham and Sarah had it while they were waiting for a child that was promised. Joseph thought it when he was in a dungeon in Egypt. Job needed a whole book to describe his story. David thought about this question when he was in a cave in Engedi running from Saul. John the Baptist did in Herod's prison cell. Peter did the night that Jesus was arrested. I've wasted my time. I've thought it. I've been there several points in my spiritual journey. I can remember one. It was July in 1990. I had been pursuing God, and it wasn't working out well. The pieces weren't falling in place. After questioning God what he was doing, I'd sent my family out of town for the weekend, and I had a meeting with God that night. I wept on my pillow. I described to God just how he could get, he could fix the pickle that he had gotten me into. I thought, God, you don't play by the rules. I've followed you, I've taken faith steps, I have put myself and my family at risk here, and you're making it harder than it needs to be. And I said, God, I quit. I'm done. It's not worth it to follow you. It's a waste of time to pursue righteousness. How about you? What has gone through your mind when you're in that situation where you feel like the wicked or those who aren't following the rules are prospering around you? Maybe it's the guy at work who doesn't really pull his weight on the team, and yet everyone knows he's taking credit for things he didn't do, and he's getting the same bonus or raise, or maybe he got the promotion you thought you deserve. It's the kid at school who cheats over and over and over again and just seems to get away with it and can talk his way out of anything. Cheaters do win. 
it seems. Maybe it's the spouse that breaks a marriage vow that goes on to a wonderful second life while you're still struggling to pick up the pieces of yours. Maybe it's the other people on Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram that show all the fun things that they're getting to do this summer while you're at home trying to make ends meet. Maybe it's the prosperity of, political, of people in political office that seem to care about their maintaining power more than fixing issues. The world seems upside down right now. Maybe it's the person that who smoked and drank and lived a wild life all his life and he dies comfortably in his home at 86 from natural causes while your godly mom and dad were beaten to death by cancer and its treatment. It doesn't seem right. It seems like there's no justice in this world doesn't God see? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he care? If so, why doesn't he act? How did our singer-songwriter get here? How is it that we get to this same point uh, in our life and struggle on this, on this journey that we have? Well, let's analyze some of Asaph's thinking to see uh, if we fall into the same wrong thinking that he had. Let me show you five ways that Asaph is thinking wrong, and therefore he misses God's truth. Our beloved Dr. Chris Thurman would say he has stinking thinking. So let's look at, at uh, Asaph's thinking. First... Uh, uh, we think wrongly about God. Asaph did that and we do too. Did you catch the first two words of the song? Surely God. It means I've got God figured out. I know what he does and what he's like and what he's supposed to do. We think we figured him out Heaven and earth, the Bible says heaven and earth can't hold God, can't contain him, but we try to put him in a box and keep him on our shelf and rub him like a genie's lamp. We think God is here to serve us, that his highest goal is to make us happy, to give us a good life here and now. God should be obligated to bless the righteous. That's how this is supposed to work. But that's wrong thinking. So we think wrong about uh, God. We also have wrong thinking about what is good. We have this picture of what success and prosperity and blessing looks like. We buy into this world's view that success is the accumulation of wealth or position, or influence, or, or quality of life, or health. It's still wrong thinking. We think wrongly about God. We think wrongly about what is good. We think wrongly about what we deserve. We think we're entitled to a certain lifestyle or level of comfort, especially us American Christians. 
God should give us what, whatever it takes for us to be comfortable and happy. We think wrongly about God. We think in wrong ways about what is good and about what we deserve. And we think wrong about time. We think we determine God's timetable. Prosperity should happen now. Justice should happen now. The punishment of the wicked shouldn't wait. It should happen now. What is God waiting for? Fix it now. It's wrong thinking. Wrong thinking about God, about what is good, about what we deserve, about time, and wrong thinking about how God is engaged in the world today. Jesus came almost 2,000 years ago as a suffering saver to redeem lost people. Those that missed it were looking for a savior who would come and fix a broken economic, political, and social system. That's not his mission. He came to seek and save the lost. Now, I long for the day when he comes back because he's coming as the righteous king. And let me tell you, he's not gonna fix this world. He's gonna make it new. There's a new heaven and a new earth. It's not redeeming this one and its political and social and, and economic systems. It's instituting a new one. So he thinks wrongly about God. He thinks wrongly about what is good. He thinks wrongly about what uh, he deserved. He thinks wrongly about time and about how God is engaged in the world now. And we think those same ways. And it gets us into the same trouble that Asaph gets into with his line of thinking. It's not just what, that you have this thought that it's a waste of time to pursue righteousness. The, real, the greater risk is what you do with it. What is the next step you take? See, Asaph realizes up on this hilltop that he can either step back from the edge or he steps forward and if he does, he'll fall down the cliff. What is going to keep him from taking that step forward? He's going to give us a clue of that. There's two things that keep him from falling over and, and therefore choosing to take a step back. Let's look at where we left him in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands of innocence. In verse 16, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. I like the way New American Standard says it. It says, it was troublesome in my sight. He is in turmoil here. He is about, he knows the next step he takes holds his fate in his hands. There are two things that will keep him from, from taking the step forward and off the cliff. Verse 15 says, if I had spoken out like that, if I had verbalized what I was thinking, I would have betrayed your children. Again, the New American Standard says, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. 
If he had verbalized what he was thinking, others would hear him, and they would be influenced by his words and his actions. They had followed him to this point. They would follow him in the fall also. His words could bring life or they could bring death. He takes a second look around him, and it's not that he sees injustice or inequity. He sees faces. He realizes he's not on this journey alone. Others are listening to him sing his song, his ballad. He's a husband and a father. His wife and his kids are watching him. They're seeing him struggle. They see him slip and fall into despair. He's a leader among God's people. Others are gasping as he sings this song and gets to this point. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. They're wondering what he'll do next. Because if it's a waste of him, waste of, for him to live a godly life, what chance do they have? We've seen key church leaders do this, right? They speak out and say it's all a waste, and they walk away from their faith. They don't just walk away by themselves. They leave in their wake people who were close to them, who now are doubting their faith and their God. Sometimes we make a good choice because we understand the impact of our bad choice on others around us. He looked around first and saw the others that were following him, and it kept him from taking the next step. Then he has a whole different view. He looks at God. In verse 17 it says, till I entered uh, the sanctuary of God, the sanctuary of God was the presence of God before him. He got a different view than what he had seen. It wasn't, again, the injustice around him and that the wicked were prospering. He got a new, fresh look at who God is. And then the confusion begins to clear. This renewed presence of God peels away the veneer of this world, and, he and God shows him a different view of the wicked, of himself, of time, the timeline of eternity, and what is most important. See, drawing close to God is going to change the tune of this song. He's going to get a major adjustment with his eyesight and his thought life here in the presence of God. He's going to realize that he had a wrong view of God and a wrong view of what's good and what he deserves and of time and how God engages in this current world. That God defines who he is and how he operates and we don't. In verse 17 and through 20, he'll see a true uh, uh, rewards of the righteous and the true fruits of the wicked. He'll see that their life is like a fantasy. It's like a dream that disappears when you wake up. But oh, for the righteous, oh, there's something good. As Matt put it several weeks ago, there's a banquet table prepared for us. In verses 21 and 22, Asaph is going to look in the mirror 
and he doesn't like what he sees. He's going to call himself a beast for the way he was thinking and acting. In verse 23 through 28, as he ends his psalm, we'll see that his view of success, prosperity, and blessing was all wrong. He'll see that is what is really good for us and what we desperately need is an intimate right relationship with God. And we can have it now and for all eternity. I have a quote over my desk, so as soon as I look up from my computer or anything, I see this quote. It's by a pastor and author uh, in Atlanta. His name is Ken Boa. It says this, Most Christians prefer the better life of God's blessing over the better hope of his presence. Do you catch it? Most Christians prefer the better life of his presence, of God's blessing, over the better hope of his presence. We'd rather have the blessing as opposed to the blesser. If you listen to some of our prayers, that's how we pray. This quote changed the way I pray for people. The way I pray for you. Yes, I certainly want God's blessing in your life, but more than anything, I've come to understand what you need to know. What will change your life is to understand the presence of God now that he's closer than you think, that he's there. There's no place you go that you go alone. So I pray for God's presence in your life. Now, let's listen to how Asaph ends this, uh, his song here. He states two great truths in verse 25 and 28. Verse 25, it says, Whom have I in heaven? But you and on earth, the, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. He recognized that he wasn't created to be satisfied by this world. But his satisfaction comes in an intimate, personal relationship with God. Verse 28, another great conclusion. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all his deeds. Do you see? God is good to Israel, to those who walk uprightly. What is really good is the nearness of my God. He has a new definition of what is good. To be close to God is true goodness. When he was reluctant to speak before because he would cause other people to stumble, oh, he's going to speak now. He's going to speak about his sovereign God being his refuge, his strength, his courage, and tell about all of God's deeds to his children. We need to let the presence of God overcome the confusion of this world. And it's confusing. So the next time you think about getting passed over or seeing someone win by cheating, the next time you see injustice and inequity and un the unfairness of this fallen world, the next time you come to that point where you just want to quit and be done with it, 
Think of Asaph's ballad in Psalm 73. Let it remind you that walking with God is worth it. Take a step back from those thoughts. Realize other people are looking. Get a fresh view of who God is and what he's doing. Embrace the idea that cultivating a close personal walk with God is more important than anything this world can offer you or that you could have in this world. This fall, we're going to take a little journey for about four weeks. We're going to, uh, Matt's going to do a series using this book by Sky Jethani on With. They're in sale in the, the deal, so now this is a shameless plug for you to buy a book. But what he does in this book, he, subtitle is this, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. What if, like Asaph, we get it wrong? We put our hope in the wrong things as opposed to a relationship with God. So join us on that journey as we do that uh, here from the pulpit and in our uh, uh, communities and other ways. But remember this. When you're tempted to be discouraged, to despair, the nearness of your God is your ultimate good. And that's what Jesus provided for us. Let's pray. Father, you're a wonderful God. We thank you that you love us, that there is no place that we can go physically or emotionally or spiritually, that you are not there. Father, we need to understand in a deep and refreshing way who you are and how you relate, and to set you free from the box we tend to put you in, the wrong thinking that we have, so that you can be our good, good Father. Jesus, thank you that you provided that kind of relationship to be with our God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.